Uh, we are turning the page on the last series that we went through. We're turning the page from our start here. We hope that you engaged with us on Sunday mornings, but we hope that you also engaged in home groups. Uh, if you didn't, you missed out on a tremendous blessing. Uh, some incredible discussions took place in my home as well as host homes, uh, home groups in, uh, in and throughout this area. And so we hope that you participated that way, but we're turning the page now. But I do believe this to be a very complimentary series. Uh, having just finished Start Here, we are beginning something that I believe to be essential. As we study God's Word, an essential thing that will uh, drive how we view God, drive uh, how we respond to God, and we'll do it through the series entitled I Promise. And so we're going through I Promise as a series uh, until the first week of March. We're going through with the other uh, two campuses of Lindsay Lane will be preaching through the same thing, and then we will be celebrating all of that the first weekend in March with a marriage conference. But we, we talk about February, and we understand February to be a time that many of us are focused on the loves in our life. Whether that is a significant other, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, whether that is a husband or wife, fiancé, uh, or whether that is loved ones, our families around us. February is a time with Valentine, Valentine's Day here. It's a time for us to consider those that we care about. And so in the same way, this I Promise series is giving us insight into the God of our love, the God who loves us and has pursued us. If we're not careful, we'll look at the Old Testament and we'll see a different God than we serve in the New Testament. We'll see a God of wrath and a God of judgment. We'll only see a God who uh, is only concerned about himself. We'll see a God that uses a people group to annihilate other people groups. And we see a God that seems very different than the God of the New Testament. But yet we have the very testimony of God in that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so what we're going to be doing over the next five weeks is we're going to be tracking God's love through the Old Testament covenants. Uh, and so we begin in Genesis chapter 6. We begin with the covenant that God makes with Noah. The title of this sermon is The Preservation of the Promise. The Preservation of of the promise. We've already spoken of in our Start Here series, we talked about the fall, we talked about man, and we talked about the devastating effects that the fall had on creation. And so you could make the argument, and many have, that there is a covenant that's made with Adam, uh, known as the Edenic covenant. I don't know why they call it that. They should just say the covenant made in Eden, or the covenant with Adam, but no, we use fancy words because... We want to lose people, I guess. But, uh, but there's, a, there's a covenant of sorts that's made in Eden. There's not really, the word covenant doesn't appear, but it's uh, very, very similar uh, to what we see elsewhere. But we go from there with man leaving the presence of God, having chosen the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. They chose sin. They became aware of good and evil, but they became aware that they were no longer good and they were in fact evil. And so we find ourselves in Genesis chapter 6 with all of this come full circle. Growing up, I heard the Bible called 
God's love story. And the subheading of this series is God's love letter. And while I agree with that idea, there's a danger in this concept as well. Because it depends on how you view what does it mean to be God's, for the God's word to be his love letter to us. If by God's love letter, if it, is, uh, if it means that scripture only serves to show us how much God loves us, then we've missed the whole point of the Bible. If it solely exists to show us God loves us and he has lavished his love on us, then what the danger of that is we have made ourselves the subject of the gospel. We have made ourselves the crowning jewel. We have made ourselves the apex. We have made ourselves the high point of Scripture. Man becomes the end in and of itself. But God's love letter wasn't designed this way. Unlike the relationships we pursue, where a connection with a certain person will do something for us, will bring joy, will bring contentment, will bring pleasure, the promised love of God that we see in Scripture comes to a creation that can give him nothing in return. And if the Old Testament record tells us anything, it tells us that man is wholly unlovely. Right? It makes sense for me to pursue a relationship with my wife. Because she is lovely. And she's the best thing that's ever happened to me. It makes sense for me to pursue this relationship. Now it says something about her that she said yes. It says plenty, God lover. Marry them young so they don't know what they're doing, right? No, I'm just kidding. They don't know they can do better. But it says something about it. And so for God to pursue a people that are completely unlovely and that can do nothing for him in return doesn't say much about man. It says more about God. And what we find for God, for this to be God's love letter to us, it is God communicating love to us. If you miss God's love for you in this series, then you have missed a vital aspect of the gospel. But God's love for us doesn't so much say how good we are. In fact, Old Testament text proves otherwise. New Testament text proves otherwise. But it says a whole lot about the glory of God to pursue us in the state that he found us. Amen? And so we're going to begin reading in Genesis chapter 6 as we look at man's mess. Man's mess. In the same way that, you know, I as a dad, I parent differently than my wife. I parent differently from Becca. Uh, I, would re- I would say this, and I don't know if this is every man in here, some of you you probably may be better fathers than I am. That's fine. Uh, I am reactive in parenting. My wife is proactive. My wife will keep bad things from happening. I respond to bad things after they've happened, right? And so if I'm watching the children, I'm known to leave the room for a bit. 
I'm known to get too carried away with something on my phone. That's another sermon series. I'm liable to get caught up in something. And then I hear it. The crash, the boom, or even worse, I don't hear it. And I walk in, because when your kids are quietest, that's when they're the worst. And you walk in, and I say something to the effect of, what a mess. What a mess. Now, that's if I'm being spiritual. (laughs) I have said much worse than that, but what a mess. When God finds us, when he created us, we made a thorough mess of ourselves. What we see in man's mess, we see man's corruption. We see man's sin in Genesis 3, and by Genesis 6, it has come full term. Listen to, the, uh, to what it says in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What we see here is man has defiled himself, not by just what he does. That's wickedness. They have done wicked things. But it's worse than that. My, my children don't just do bad things. It's deeper than that. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He says, I'm not so concerned with my sins as I am my sinfulness. My ability and propensity to run to sin. Why? Because we're not just messed up on the outside. We're messed up on the inside. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was on evil continually. You think we live in a day, a scary day and age now. Imagine Noah's day. Every thought of every intent of every heart was on evil continually. And the Lord regretted. Say regretted. Say regretted. All right, good. That he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I made them say sorry. I am sorry that I made them. There are some profound words in this text. And I don't know about you, but this doesn't come from a pastor's heart. This comes from a normal everyday believer's heart. For God to say, I regret I regret ever creating man, ever creating creation, nature. I regret doing it. In fact, King James says that God repented He repented of it, of his decision to make man. When I think of that, it it sticks in my crawl a little bit. It's it's something that I have a hard time swallowing. That's a difficult truth for me, and it may be for you as well. But it stems from our understanding of the word regret, right? When I regret something, I regret things that I have not foreseen that have taken place because of the decision I've made, right? I I, I see things and I I, I do something and then I realize, 
probably shouldn't have done that. Can I tell you church planning is a giant cycle of making those decisions and then regretting that you did them that way? If I would have known that my preschool workers would have revolted against me because I made a shirt, a hideous bright orange shirt that had North kids on it, but that I was going to make them wear every single Sunday. If I would have known they would have revolted against me, which they did for good reason, I would have never done it in the first place. I regretted making those shirts that are now sitting in the back room and will probably be there till Jesus comes back, right? I regretted making that decision to which my wife said, it's okay to wear it one week, but every week, Alan, right? And so we regret because of decisions that we've made that the consequences came that we didn't consider. It's things we don't know that cause us to regret. The regret of God was not in the realization of sin. Understand that. It wasn't in the realization of sin. Vance Pittman says, I believe it's Vance. It may have been another, somebody else before him, but I've heard Vance say it. Vance Pittman said, has it ever dawned on you that nothing has ever dawned on God? Meaning nothing's taken him by surprise. When man sinned, he wasn't going, oh, gracious. Was not expecting this. Those idiots, right? Like, he wasn't doing that. He knew that man would sin. He knew they would sin in Genesis 3, and he knew the state of sin in Genesis 6 would happen. Y'all, he created us anyway. He knew it. So it's his regret. the regret of God is not in the realization of sin, but in the reality of sin. He created us knowing we would revolt. As Peter would say in Acts chapter 2, he created us, the, the cross was in the foreknowledge of God from the very beginning. Wow. He knew what it meant to create man. And so it wasn't in the realization of sin, but the reality of it. In your notes, our regret is motivated by consequences unconsidered. I did not consider what would happen by making this decision, whether it's sin or whether it's just a poor decision like picking hideous shirts, right? God's regret was motivated by consequences confirmed. For God to regret making man was not for him to be taken off guard by man's sin. But in fact, it was a confirmation of what he knew from the very beginning. The word regret in Hebrew literally means, it's a a word that has a broad spectrum of interpretation. Uh, It means to sigh. Uh, have you ever gotten to a place, right, where, where things have gotten so bad, you just, you just sigh. Why? To find some type of relief or solace in just a second of this. It means to be pained, to experience pain. It grieved God's heart to see man in the condition that they were in, even though knowing that man would have put himself there, it grieved the heart of God. He was pained in doing it. It pained him to see his image twisted and marred. But it also means to comfort oneself. This is the idea that he's getting at, what the King James is getting at, when he uses, they use the word repent, that he repented. He He went a different direction with man. Again, God didn't change his mind toward men. 
But in man's sin was the understanding of God that the way that he would respond to them would never be the same. And so instead of moving of moving in love and favor toward man, which is what he had done from the beginning, right? He had moved in favor. He created a good man and a good woman who was perfect and was out without flaw, but man ran from that design. Man chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in so doing, God could only respond in one way. To hear that God regretted making man, it was regretting the fact, knowing that, he would forever, it would forever change how he responds to man. Because of man's sin, God could not respond in love, but must respond in judgment and wrath. God didn't change. But everything that man had done in the pursuit of their own passions and their own desires brought God to the un- already understood understanding that he would respond in judgment rather than love again. Because man was tarnishing the glory of God as his image bearers and the standard of bearers over creation, judgment was the foregone conclusion. Man would be judged and we know the judgment that they would receive rather than multiplying the image of God. Right? Remember what God told Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Why? So that God's image would go forth. But rather than multiplying God's image, they have multiplied an image that looked a lot like themselves. They had multiplied sin. They had compounded sin. And they had brought themselves to a desperate state. They began living for themselves rather than living for the glory of God. And living for self will always require God's judgment. If you're in here today and you've been set free, you have accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know that God can still only respond to your sin in judgment. Don't miss this. But how he responds to those that are redeemed is the punishment that he placed on his son stands in place of your punishment. He's still punishing your sin, but he's doing it through the person of Jesus. He's still a God that, is, that has to respond in judgment, but he did it. He bruised, he beat, he scarred his son so that by his stripes we could be healed. This is the picture that we have as the writer of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, as he's detailing the judgment that's coming to Israel as a result of their actions, he tells God, he implores of God, in your wrath, remember mercy. Remember mercy. Because what you need to understand about God's judgment, and if you have been set free, if you have a relationship with Christ in this room, you understand this better than any. God will always save a remnant. He will save a people. And so let's look in his wrath as he is determining to flood the world and to destroy the world with flood. Let's look at, secondly, God's mercy. 
If the first point, if man's mess was man's corruption, the second point, God's mercy would be God's compassion. His compassion. Listen to what it says in verse 8. Now Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Noah found favor with God. He found favor with him. And if we're not careful, we'll look at that and go, well, he found favor because he was perfect. But understand what we know about Noah after the flood is we, it confirms that Noah was not perfect. Noah was a drunk. Noah had a problem controlling his anger. He had a problem with self-control. Noah was anything but perfect. And so if he was not perfect after the flood, we can go ahead and assume that Noah wasn't perfect before the flood. But God, but Noah found favor with God. The word favor literally means compassion. Now, when we think of people that have found favor in our eyes, we think of people that have done something for us. Somebody that has served us in some way, and it has led to a position of merit with us. But what are, who are people that we have compassion on? Well, those people are completely different. Those people aren't people that have done things for us. Those are people that find themselves in a desperate need. And because of that desperate need, we're, we're inclined to help. I see you in financial difficulty, so I want to give. I see you in a situation where I want to respond in encouragement, so we, we call and we pray. We have compassion on others based on need. Can I tell you, God's response to Noah was not based on Noah's qualities and his performance. It was based on God's compassion on him. What God saw in Noah was a great need. Noah might have been righteous in comparison to others of that day, but it was his in his desire to serve God that made Noah stand out. Noah wasn't perfect. Noah wasn't perfect, but Noah desired to honor God. Noah found favor. Noah wasn't perfect after the flood and probably not before the flood either, but God didn't destroy sin. On the ark. He didn't destroy it. Sin floated on the ark. Sin remained in the ark. Fallen creation went in and fallen creation came out. But God had compassion. Moved by man's great need. God responded to unlovely man in love. And he took mercy. He showed mercy on Noah. It was Noah's heart, not holiness, that led to God's help. It's Noah's heart. It was his desire to honor God. Not his holiness. Not that he had never failed. But that he looked to the Lord for help that led to God's help. While perfection is God's standard... 
It's always God's standard. Don't ever hear me say anything other than that. Perfection is God's standard. It's why God would command, Be ye holy as I am holy. It is God's standard. Perfection. But God's standard, while perfection is God's standard, persistence is the point. In the same way that practice makes perfect, right? We're not going to arrive at perfect ever, regardless of how much we practice our craft. We're not going to arrive at perfect. But we continue to practice our swings. We continue to go out there and play. We continue to work and work and work so that we can get closer to that standard. What he saw in Noah was faith. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. I'll prove it to you. Hebrews chapter 11, we find the Faith Hall of Fame. Great men, Old and New Testament, that demonstrated remarkable faith in the, in the face of incredible, tremendous difficulty. Listen to what it says. Read along with me. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 7. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, is in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. What's the opposite of faith? Anybody? What's the opposite of faith? Anybody? Go ahead, yell it out. Opposite of faith is? It's not really a trap. Is that? Oh, everybody. Okay, great. Everybody's sighing. Everybody's repenting here. What's the opposite of faith? Doubt. Thank you, Will. You're paid to be good. I want one of these people that are good for nothing. No, I'm joking. All right? Doubt. It's immediately what comes to my mind, right? The opposite of faith is, is doubt. And if we're having faith, we're not doubting. I don't know who said this. A lot of people have, but theologians uh, and scholars have, have uh, agreed that, yes, that's a, that's a proper definition, depending on how you look at it. But for Noah, the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. Now, what does that mean? The moment something begin, becomes real is the moment faith is no longer required. If you're seeing it, you don't have to... You don't have to have faith anymore. Can I tell you, it takes remarkable faith to build a gigantic boat in the middle of a desert. It takes remarkable faith, especially when every mind of every, and every heart of every person that's ever existed in that time and in that region is always bent toward evil. For you to have faith enough to build a boat just because God said to takes incredible faith. Noah hadn't seen the rain. He hadn't seen the flood. Those things hadn't happened yet. They were shut up in the, in the ark before the first raindrop fell. But because Noah had faith in God, 
he acted. This is what it says in Genesis 7, verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Without question, without hesitation, Noah did what God commanded. Faith in God is what leads to obedience for God. Faith in God leads to obedience for God. He did everything that was commanded, not because Noah's great, but because Noah believed and had faith and confidence in a real God. And he put his hope and trust in him. We talk about God's compassion. Not because of anything Noah did. I equate it to this in my hands. Now, Anybody that's ever been on a boat, especially a flat-bottom boat, they seem to have a lot more of these. Everyone knows what this is. Yes, it is a personal flotation device. It is a PFD. But everybody that boats knows that this is the bare minimum requirement to have in your vessel in case you are checked, right? If somebody comes and checks, they're going to say, if you've got five people in your boat, you need five flotation devices. And so where did I get this? From the bottom of our duck boat. I'm pretty sure mine is the only neck that has ever been on this device. And it says, adult, universal, one size fits all, baloney. Right? It don't fit me. Right? Hang on, a little snug. Can you imagine a few months ago? Gosh. Right? I'm trying to save my own life. Trying to get it. There's no way. Right? I'm just going. I'm, just, I'm gone. I'm a goner. But we got it in the boat. Right? This is a personal flotation device. What's the, what's the point of a personal flotation device? Right? To save you. If the unexpected happens, to save you. Now, we, we recognize the lifesaver. Right? The, the circle is something that you would throw. But in, in, in a pinch. Right? You would take this out. If somebody wasn't wearing one, you'd throw it to them so they have something to float on. If there's some reason they're, they're sinking or whatever, you use it to rescue yourself or others. This is the point of this PFD, of this, of this life jacket, or uh, as, as we say in Lick Skillet, the life preserver, right? That's what we call them. It's a life preserver, right? And so it preserves our existence. This is exactly what God did with Noah. Noah did nothing to earn God's favor or to merit his attention As David would say, nothing's changed. What is man that you're mindful of him? But God, through the life preserver, God preserved his promises. And that is a theme that will continue over and over and over, as we'll see in the Old Testament. Right? He preserves Life. He preserves the remnant. But he doesn't just do it. He doesn't just do it so that man can be preserved. He didn't just save Noah so Noah could be preserved again. God doesn't rescue only for the, the, the person being rescued, right? There's a purpose and there's a point. Thirdly and finally, we see glory's mission. Glory's mission.
Genesis 6 is man's mess. If what we see in Genesis 6 into Genesis 7 is God's compassion or God's mercy, then what we see in Genesis 9 is God's recommission of man. Listen to what it says. Genesis 9, verse 1. Read it for yourself. And God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, y'all ready for this? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Boy, that sounds familiar. In fact, it sounds like the exact words he told Adam and Eve. To be fruitful and multiply and multiply my image. God renewed his covenant despite man's sin. Despite the fact that Noah, although looking to God and having faith in God, had not achieved righteousness and therefore was in desperate need of God and of preserving. God then, who rescued completely through the ark, regave Noah the same purpose. Fill the earth with my image. It was a rescinding of man. Forty days and forty nights, it rained. Many believe, scholars believe, it was up to 120, maybe even more, days before the waters resided, right? We're talking about, we're talking about a long period of time before the floodwaters even came down. But they emerge and the first thing they hear is be fruitful. And multiply. His promise is renewed. In God's preservation, we also find our purpose. God doesn't save us just so we can enjoy salvation. God changes changes us. God saves us so that we can be about his glory. The story doesn't end with you. The story ends with him. The apex of the gospel doesn't end with you get to go to heaven, man. It ends with you get to bring others with you to the glory of God, to the greater glory of one who is greater than yourself. God doesn't just rescue us. He recommissions us. He repurposes us. And he sends us out as he did Noah. Look look what he does in Genesis 9, beginning in verse 12. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all future generations. That's important because man's going to continue to sin. Man's going to continue to blow it. But his promise is for all generations. I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. He doesn't just leave them with a promise, but he gives them a sign. Every time you see it, not only will you be reminded of what I did for you, but you'll be reminded of what I sent you to do. God's covenant 
to never bring, God covenanted to never bring worldwide destruction of man by water again. This covenant was unconditional based upon man's actions. It was unconditional. I will preserve life. I will never again flood the earth with water. God offered them a reminder of his love for them that pursued them when they were most unlovely. And the rainbow was given as a sign that God's favor, his compassion on man would continue. And it does so even to this day. Although man made a mess of things, God's mercy and love was shown through not only preserving a remnant of the faithful, but they are tasked to carry that message of his continued favor and love throughout the world and throughout history. God is still in the business of rescuing us from our sin. In New Testament church, our rescue doesn't look like an ark. Our rescue looks like a cross. God chose another wooden structure to spread out his son and to die for our sin. But not only our sin, but for the sin of the whole world. As Paul addresses that, not only your sin, church, that I'm writing to, but for the sin of the whole world. Why? Because wrapped up in that rescue is a purpose, is a reason. And so those that are redeemed will say so. They will say so. It's a natural response to a God who has rescued us. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I don't know where you find yourself today. Maybe you find yourself today in need of rescue. Maybe God is someone that you recognize, but it's not someone that you have relationship with. If there's never been a time that you have confessed your sins to God, that you have asked for him to forgive you of those sins, you've repented and turned from those sins and surrendered your life to Jesus, my friend, your, fra- your fate is even worse than those that were outside the ark of that day. Because God didn't just, re- he rescued Noah from physical death. But through the cross, God has rescued us from spiritual death. And so if you don't have that relationship with him, my friend, I want you to know that you are completely without hope in finding rescue anywhere else but in the person of Jesus. And so if you've never if you've never accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're the most important person in this room. In just a moment, when I call for an invitation, I would love call for a response. I would love for you to come find this center aisle. It's big. Find the big center aisle. You got plenty of room to move find one of these counselors at the front they'd love to talk to you about how you can know that you have a relationship with Jesus but it's going to take faith as Abraham as 
Noah responded in faith. So must we respond in faith before we receive the certainty of our salvation. So would you do that today? It's the most important decision you could ever make. But maybe you, although having been rescued, maybe you're living for yesterday's purposes. Maybe you're living for purposes not not beyond this world. To you, I would invite you to rededicate your life to him today. Maybe you need to join what's happening here at Lindsay Lane North. Counselors would love to talk to you about what the membership process looks like. Maybe you need to follow him in believer's baptism to let others know about the relationship that you have with Christ. Whatever it is, I pray that you would respond to Jesus at his invitation today. Father, we give you this time. Move us. Move us. Show us mercy and grace in this moment to respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen. With every head and heart still bowed, if you're here and you need to make a decision for Christ today, salvation, rededication, membership, baptism, you just need someone to talk to, would you stand right where you are? Stand right where you are. Find this middle aisle. Come to the front. We would love to talk to you about whatever that next step of obedience looks like to you. Don't let this moment slip by without responding to the invitation of the Lord. How about you? How about you? We're not going to tarry. We're not going to drag it out. If you need to make a decision today, do it. watching online, there's a way for you to respond as well. In the initial post of this video, you'll find information on our online connect card. If you will, click that link, fill out that connect card, and let us know whatever decision that you made today. And myself, Will, one of our staff, will follow up with you this week, whatever decision. We have those roll in. Uh, Every month we have one or two that'll roll in, letting us know about life-changing decisions that have happened in homes across this community. And we're so thankful. Please take an opportunity to do that. For you in this room, you can let us know as well through those connect cards. There's a place for you to mark if you made a decision today. Slide those in the offering bucket as you leave on the way out today. But don't miss, don't miss the plan and the purpose that God has for your life. Father, we love you and we thank you for your promise. You have made a promise. And you've sworn, known to swear by none greater, you have sworn by yourself that you will be true to those promises. And so, Lord, we trust you. Let us live changed as new creatures in you. Be glorified in all that we say and do as we are gathered and as we leave this place in a few minutes.